years ago, I was at a uh, seminar. It was a Promise Keeper seminar, so it was a long time ago. I think they're still in existence today. But the speaker of that seminar was talking about a principle called the Nehemiah Principle. And I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but if you think back to the book, Old Testament book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was one who came back to Jerusalem. The wall was devastated, and God called him to build a wall around Jerusalem. So he gathered a group of people, and they, they had the vision of, under, of getting that wall built, and about 30 days into building the wall, opposition comes to Nehemiah and those people. And guess what happened? They started grumbling. They started complaining. But functionally, it took only about 30 days before they forgot the mission that they were on to rebuild that wall. And, and the speaker took that, and, he, and he, he talked about this principle that as he's watched groups of people with, with a mission, with a vision to go somewhere, that he said it takes oftentimes less than 30 days before people forget why they're doing what they're doing. And I have actually found this to be quite true. Matter of fact, when I work with marriages, I do quite a bit of marriage counseling, and, and what I find is that couples that who are in trouble, they get in, and it's about 30 days, and their, their marriage becomes a little bit more stable, okay? But at that point, they, I, I see often where people, where marriages begin to forget that there was a vision beyond just a stable marriage. It was a vision for oneness, and they've already forgotten it. And the question that churches have to wrestle with. See, at times we're called here to love God and to respond by making disciples. But is there a place where we can actually forget why we're doing what we're doing? And I think that's true. And I think here's the default setting, I think, that at times. It's this. We default, yeah, we know we're supposed to make disciples and impact our world and impact people around us. But we default to, I want a nice church. That's going to minister to me and my family. And the vision of making disciples has been reduced to having a nice church. Do you understand the temptation of a church? But catch this. If you would apply that principle that, that churches forget why they exist, I think that's also true all the way back to when churches were being established. Matter of fact, when you look at the epistles the, and, the, and the writers that were writing to those churches, in many ways what they were doing was revisioning these churches, calling them back to be the church, to be a healthy church, to make disciples, and to make a difference in this world. And if you put that lens over those letters, I think that's a very good way of understanding why these apostles were writing these letters. They wanted to bring them back to what God wanted them to do as well. Now, one of the ways for us to call us back to a church of, to make disciples is, is we use a little diagram. I'm going to put that on the screen there. It's a baseball diamond. And what we've used, you'll notice that there's four words that are painted on the wall. If you've never seen them, after the service, you can look up on the wall. It's, it's belonging, believing, and becoming, and bringing. And in many ways, it's a good way of picturing the pathway to become a disciple of Jesus. And a couple weeks ago, 
Uh, Steve talked about this idea of becoming. It's the idea that, or belong, I'm sorry, belonging. It's the, it's the community, it's the connections that people need in order for a church to exist, in order for a church to love each other. We need to belong to people. We need to belong to each other and belong to Christ in that process. But we don't stop on first base. We head towards second. The goal of a baseball game isn't just to get a hit and stay on first. We go to second. And this idea of believing. Well, believing, at, at times what people do is they believe about things about God. But one of the nuances there that we emphasized last week is this idea that we are to believe God and believe his word that he's speaking to us, that he wants to change us, and he wants us to know him and to believe him, to trust him in, in multiple ways. But we're not supposed to stay there either just on second base. And today, we're coming to this idea of becoming, this idea of becoming more like Christ and when you stop and think of some of the phrases that if, if you've grown up in a church, you know some of the phrases, growing in your faith, spiritual maturity, transformation, a changed heart, all of those phrases and words would apply to this idea of becoming like Christ, becoming like Jesus. And this idea of becoming is crucial when it comes to making disciples even as a church. But let me put up just the key point. We're going to keep kind of building on this this morning. If you're following along in the outline there in the bulletin, I said it this way. God wants spiritual change in our lives. And change is hard for some of us. But it's this idea that he wants something different and more than just salvation. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at just a short text here this morning. And I'll point out one thing. When I put it on the screen here, this is the New Living Translation. I chose it just because it's a paraphrased version. I understand that. But there were some great words, that the way it phrased it, that I just felt like it was helpful for this morning. By the way, a paraphrase is different than a word for word. If you have a New American Standard, for example, what they do is they try to take the manuscripts and kind of go word for this word and that word. A paraphrase is more of an idea in the sense of getting the main idea and putting and into more modern English that, that flows easier when we're reading. So we're going to use the NLT this morning. But look at verse 1. This letter is from Simon Peter, a slave and the apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to you who share the same precious faith we have. This faith was given to you because of justice and the fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. He starts out, with a standard greeting, but he reminds them that he is a slave to Jesus. Now, here's one of the challenges. We don't like the word slave. It's really a negative thing. But understand the intensity of Peter here is he's, I am I'm a bond servant. I'm tied to Jesus. I do what he tells me to do. So he gives this idea how deeply connected he is to Christ. But he also gives his credentials. He points out there that he's been an apostle. He's been with Jesus. He's learned from Jesus. Jesus has taught him. So Peter is really kind of given the framework of some authority as to why he's even writing the letter. But then he reminds them, you know what, you guys, you've been saved by the same God that saved me. And so he reminds them of salvation and the benefits of salvation. But he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 2. 
He goes on to write this, may God give you more and more grace and peace. But then look at this phrase, as you grow, as you change, there's the change again, in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. See, he's reminding them that you never can become stagnant in one's knowing God. And that growing there, that grow, I looked up the word a bit and dug a bit, and it actually means multiply. It's a very intense word. It's not just a little bit of change. It's consistent over and over and over again. So it's a large amount of change that he's asking for them to take place in their lives. But let me just kind of throw out an illustration in here to begin with, and we'll use it a little bit later. Any of you ever have a garden? Any gardeners here? A number of you have a garden. This is a time of year when you're picking the tomatoes off or the squash off or the pumpkins off. But understand when when they stop bearing fruit and and they're not growing anymore, what are what's a plant doing? Dying. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> is that not true maybe for our faith? If we're not growing, see, I don't think there's this neutral spot where we stop. Either we're moving toward Christ, becoming more like him, or I think this, I think we're sliding back and we're kind of dying on the vine. And we'll use that illustration later. But let's keep going. Look at verse 3. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for, a, for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him and the one who called us to himself by the means of his marvelous glory and excellence. What's the saying for us today? Peter's reminding us that spiritual change in our hearts, our lives, to become like Christ comes from the power of God. It isn't just us trying harder. Power has been given to us because we have a union with Christ now through the Holy Spirit. Now, just a reminder, he's writing to believers here today as well. Just got to point that out. But do you realize if a person doesn't have a faith, is not connected to the Holy Spirit, the ability to please God is diminished almost entirely. They can try to do some good things, but it means nothing in the context of a relationship and a union with Christ. But spiritual change starts with God. It's why we need to know and understand Him. But it's not without our cooperation. It needs to be with our cooperation. So we just don't sit in our hands, gather in a circle as a church, and sing Kumbaya and think that we're going to be changed. See, that just, it just doesn't work that way. Look at verse 4, though. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share, this amazing piece here, to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. In view of all this, look at this phrase, make every effort, every effort to respond to God's promises. Now, now think back to gardening with me a second. When you planted those plants, what if you really didn't know what you were doing 
and, and you get some plants or some seeds and you, and you put that seed on the kitchen table. And then you look at it and you go, grow. You come back the next day. It's not growing. Grow. Nothing happens. And then God utters this voice, hey dummy, put it in the soil. Put some water on it. Do you understand? The promises are like that. It's moving from the table into the soil where God can water it. The nutritional value of the soil begins to build and grow that little seed. Do you understand? That is where the promises that God calls us. In fact, let me give you a passage that really, I think, shows this. Look at John chapter 15. Again, gardening here. Uh, Look how it goes. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does uh, does bear fruit, he prunes that it uh, it will even be more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself, and it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So here is a promise that Peter's writing about, that if we stay connected to the vine, that God will give us the power to change and to bear fruit. To bear fruit. See, even when Peter writes in verse 4 there, he calls us to participate in the divine nature. That's a connection by the Spirit of God to Christ. That we must stay connected to the vine. And if if we disconnect from the vine, we're going to, frankly, we're going to die. But there will be no nutrition, no substance coming from God into our lives to change us to help us become like Christ. See, but, but the goal is not just salvation, just not connected. In this instance, you understand, it is to bear fruit. And we're not going to get into that, but just there's, there's a purpose behind God wanting to give us the power and to live by those promises day by day. But let's keep going. Um, verse 5, the end of verse 5. And I'm going to just explain it this way. This is kind of a stair step. This is kind of a stairway upward where it starts with one. I'm not going to get into it much at all here, but there's a reason why Peter began with the, the first one and he went through these seven virtues. But let's keep going here. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control, and self-control with patient endurance, and patient endurance with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love for everyone. So here is, he's saying, there's an intentional work on our part to begin to add and work and add these virtues to our faith. Now this first one, moral excellence, you go, okay, what does that mean? And here's what I think it's, it is. It's choosing to act in a way that's consistent what, with what Christ has taught us. To become like Jesus, we look and go, how did Jesus act? And we, in one sense, we mimic him. We copy him. 
Because why? Because his actions is pure. They're excellent in in his understanding of what to do and what not to do. But this idea, it doesn't stop with that, with with looking at Christ and and doing what he does. It, It goes to the next level. It's this idea of knowing, this idea of understanding, Adding knowledge to our understanding of who God is, who Christ is. And and this isn't just information. This is about relational knowledge. Now, now let me give you an illustration here. What if somebody came up to me and said, Ken, when's your wife's birthday? And I responded like this. I don't know. Don't really care. Saves me a gift if I don't know. You look at me and go, what? But, but see, understand this, to know somebody, we have to figure some. we have to learn about them. But isn't that true of God, of Jesus, where we got to know them to really make a difference in our lives and the lives of other people as well? We got to read the Bible to know them. Um, it's kind of fun. Last night at supper, we had a couple people over, and, and we were eating some sweet corn. And I discovered something about my wife. We've been married 40 years, okay? And I discovered something brand new about my wife last night. When she eats corn, she eats it around in a circle. And she does it wrong. You're supposed to eat it from the left to the right in rows this way. So if you see her after the service, you can go and tell her to, 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 to do it right next time. Um, but, but 40 years, I had never known that about my wife. Okay, so, so it was something new for me to learn, okay, as well. But it's more than just knowledge, knowing a person. There's another step in these virtues. And he says this, it's self-control. And this word, it's an interesting phrase because it literally means mastering your moods, your emotions, rather than being controlled by them. Meaning we don't allow circumstances to control what's really true. We don't allow the emotion of the, of the moment to, to take us down a path that, that is opposite of becoming like Christ. You know, we, we have things go on in our lives. I had a bad hair day yesterday, okay? And I'm going to make all of you pay, okay? <laughs> okay, I've had a bad hair week or month or a couple of years, okay? But, but understand, do we allow the emotions of whatever to dictate how we treat people, how we care about each other? But we don't stop there as well. It moves to this idea of, it says, patient endurance. Now your Bible might have the word steadfastness there. It's the virtue of not quitting. When stuff goes hard, when it gets hard, we don't give up. Why? It's because of fundamentally this. As we know the Father, we recognize that everything that's going through our lives is he's sifting it. He knows what he's allowing us to struggle with, to, to even temptation, even the understanding of hardship in our lives. But we have a loving father who knows and who cares. So we can be steadfast. We can have this patient endurance when things get hard. And, and oftentimes, boy, don't we need that. But there's doesn't end there. 
There's a fifth quality. It's the idea of godliness. And you're like, okay, godliness, doesn't that be like God? Are we a God? And the answer is no. Here's what the phrase really, where it comes from. The pagans back then believed that as an individual, the religious person, that if they kept close to their gods, then they would be safe. But what, is the, what would it translate into our lives? I, I think it's this, is where we work where the so the active presence of God is around us all the time. Prayer would be a piece to that of constantly praying. But it's awareness, inviting God to be present at every moment, every hard time, every good time. We're saying, God, we want you to be with me as we walk through this world. See, that's godliness that God is with us and present in our, uh, our, our lives, our everyday happenings. But then he doesn't stop there. He's, he's got two more. The first one is, is the brotherly affection type of love. This is the word Philadelphia. If you don't know that, it's a Greek word for Philadelphia, brotherly love. Uh, but it's a friendship kind of love. And, and I think this one applies really profoundly within a body of Christ, within a church, where we know each other to the point where we can live out those one another's, that we're friends with each other. They know us, we know them. It's the friendship, deep friendship, even within a family at times. But there's this understanding that we're giving to each other, we care about each other, and we want to make a difference in the lives of those that we know who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. But there's one more as well. It's that last word, love, and it's the word agape love here. But understand agape love, it doesn't originate because of somebody's whatever type of person they are. This kind of love loves because they are have the ability to love, but it's not based on anything or any worth of the other person. That person might be considered worthless in our culture, and yet we would have the ability, Christ has the ability, because God is love, to love somebody who might be totally unlovable. It's not based on the other person. And you see this as the highest point of the ladder here. The ability to love somebody without any strings attached. See, that's what God is calling us to. But in order to do that, we can't just try to do that. We have to cooperate. And I think the cooperation is this. We have to open our lives, the conduit to God, and make it bigger and bigger and bigger so he can pour his love into us. And it spills out, and it's God's love when we love other people unconditionally. It's because God loves us, and he's giving us the ability to love. But you see that as the highest point on the ladder here with this group. God is love, so he wants us to come to that place, to become like Jesus, where it, the, as we love more and more, it becomes more and more pure. And its goal, ultimately, is redemption. But we have to cooperate in this process to get there. But we have two more verses here. Look at verse 8. The more you grow like this, my great phrasing, the more productive and useful 
you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Productive use. That's the fruit, folks. As it relates to other people, our families, our, our spouses, is that something is different. We're becoming more and more like Christ. We're becoming like Him. But if that's moving in the right direction, what happens if you're sliding down? Look at verse 9. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. They forget. But let me push that more in the application portion here. I got a two here to, to close out here. The first one, I got to say it this way. God never intended for us to stop growing and changing in our faith. When people become satisfied with where they're at, spiritually, or it could be this, I'm just going to try to ignore God about where I'm at. They are in a bad place, spiritually. It means that they're sliding in the wrong direction. But see, I think we can counter that by by just kind of going through the motions and, and people can kind of create a checkoff list in their spirituality and, and even just thinking about discipleship. And it's kind of like this, as long as I'm not in a really big sin, as long as I just read my Bible a little bit and have a little bit of prayer time and give a little money to church and, and maybe even do a Bible study. And, and you know what? I'm going to give a couple minutes of service to the church or somebody else during the week. And people end up settling for that and go, they believe that that's discipleship. That's becoming like Christ. And I go, no. That's actually verse 9, that word being short-sighted and trying to push everything away. Your, your person's blinded to it. You see, the challenge is us being able to look in the mirror and go, God, I need to be changed. Are we open to that posture? But let me give you a hard question. I don't know if you've ever considered this. I want to put it on the screen. In the context of relationships, have you ever invited someone into your life so they know you well enough where they can confirm that there is positive spiritual change taking place in your life? Are you bringing, allow, and, and I think most of the time it's not your spouse if you're married. So think individually here. Are there people in our lives that can look at us, know us well enough and say, you know what, you're moving toward Jesus, toward Christ. You're becoming like Christ more and more. Or maybe they might be saying, you know what, you're sliding. Do we have those kind of people in our lives? Say, what kind of people really are we? Are we open to that? Uh, there's an acronym years ago that in youth ministry that was used. It was called FAT. Remember that? Faithful, available, teachable. See, those three terms, would that describe us here today individually? We're faithful. We're available for the Spirit to work and for us to be used and teachable. Are we willing to come under somebody's authority to help us move? 
See, but failure to develop that, there's a blindness that can set in in the reality of the moment. See, these seven virtues, are, are these increasing in our lives? And even, I would say this, they're either moving forward or they're probably, it may not be going back fast, but it could be sliding the other direction. The vine is drying up and the fruit is becomes littler and littler and all of a sudden there's no fruit being produced. Then you think, put age on top of this issue. You know, when you hit, I suppose, 45, 50, you're, you're kind of tipping the other end in terms of the last half of your life, the second half of your life. Have you come to a place, you know, this is really for us that are older, have you, have you come to a place where you've said, my faith is good enough? Good to go? I don't have to grow anymore? Coast? Coasting is okay? You understand the challenge for us here to become like Jesus. Do we think that there's a certain point where we should stop growing or we can stop working on it, cooperating with the Spirit of God? Um, And my belief is we never should stop growing. And at times I think we need to ask, well, we need to ask our children, and our grandchildren say, is God changing me? Moving me in the right direction? See, we're never too old to be changed. But here's the deal. I have seen some young people peak spiritually at 13 and 14. And the, the downward slide. See, it's not just about old people. See, even for a young person, it's to keep pursuing Jesus, getting to know, understand who he is. But we never, ever are supposed to stop becoming more and more like Christ. We'll never arrive. You know, I, uh, an example of this really was my mom. Uh, my mom died of kidney cancer about five and a half years ago. And about a year before she passed away, I I walked in on a conversation between my brother and her. My mom lived next door to us, and um, I was walking over there, and they were in a pretty heated discussion. And I just kind of sat and listened to it, and the discussion centered around this. My brother was kind of upset because my mom treated the grandkids differently. Okay? And it was evident to everybody, all of this, I got five sisters and brothers, we all knew it. And the reality is, is that my brother finally spoke up and said there were some things that took place when his kids were up. And, and uh, he, he said something to her and my mom, understand, she backed away and defended what she was doing um, to, to the grandkids. And uh, the reality is, okay, my mom was a follower of Christ. She was faithful. She read her Bible. She did her, her prayer time. She was faithful to a church. But she had, the last few years of her life, she, she had peaked probably longer than she wanted to admit it in that sense. Um, fast forward about, may have been about nine months or so, and my mom was living with us at the time. 
she was ready to get to, get to go, on, go on hospice, and we had invited her to come and live with us. And a conversation started with myself and my mom about her grandkids. And I, I think it had opened up the door that months ago. It had bugged her. And uh, I was able to share with her some very pointed examples of what she was doing with one of my son's, uh, one of his daughters, and where he treated them differently. And she really couldn't deny it. And the conversation went okay and understand, but here's the cool part about it. I saw God beginning to work in that area in her life. He wasn't done with her months to live, and he had convicted her. She, I think she looked within, she looked in the mirror, and uh, there was a time period where I all of a sudden began to see her as the grandkids would come over, and she would begin to express a much more unconditional love to all of the kids, and it was very different than before. So here's months before her death, God was still taking her and using her and changing her for his glory. Change is never supposed to stop for us. To become like Christ. He wants us to become more and more like him. To bear fruit. And and it fits with the next one on your bulletin note there. the, The second point here. Spiritual change in the right direction propels us to become investors of people. And I believe this is one of the main fruits of God wanting to be have us become like Christ. Uh, now, I'll admit to you, maybe you don't know this, but I'm an introvert, okay? And, you know, for introverts, no, I'm not the most extreme one, but for some, you know, let's take the office and just move it out of the woods away, you know, away from people. Some of you relate to that, and you're introverts as well. But here's the challenge, is that understand spiritual change, becoming like Christ, is so tied to the issue of people, and needing to be with people and invest in people. And we know that intuitively. I know ministry is about people and helping them come to know Jesus, but we can kind of satisfy a little bit of it by, you know, we we just kind of put ourselves in the right setting where we rub shoulders with people and maybe even get to know their name, and we kind of call that good enough. And I'm here to tell you, God, in order to change, to become like Christ, he's calling you to something more than that of just rubbing shoulders with people. He wants to teach you how to invest in people. Invest in people. He's wanting these seven qualities in your life to be used, and they're all used most appropriately in the context of people in ministry. Giving, investing, speaking wisdom into somebody's life. See, the challenge for us here today, maybe it needs to be that you're speaking some kind of investment, spiritual wisdom, into the life of a five-year-old. Or maybe it's a boy or girl who's 13. Or maybe it's a a young man or woman who's 20, a college-age student. And functionally, there's a lot of college-age students where their parents have never, no one's ever invested spiritually into their lives. See, are people willing to taste and, and figure out what that looks like of investing in the people? 
See, Jesus wants to begin something in us. Maybe it's investing in a marriage that's falling apart. Maybe somebody at work, you know their marriage is struggling. God wants to bring you to a place where you're personally investing in that. Maybe it's a neighbor who's lonely. Maybe it's a coworker who's trapped in their understanding of what real meaning is supposed to be like. Maybe it needs to be to start the process. You need to go on that missions trip. And you go, why? Because God wants to first bring you together to know people, but he wants to give you a vision of what disciple-making is about, knowing people, seeing people, seeing people like Jesus that are struggling, that are hurting. And by investing in going on a trip like that, God provides a setting for you to become more and more and for you to learn to invest in other people. Even it's building with them a house for somebody. Matter of fact, let me just put up on a slide just to remind you, we're looking for more people. And some of you need to take a week out of your life and go down there and allow the Spirit of God to start the process of becoming more and more like Him. But I want to end this way. A life, a couple life verses for me that I've used. I've used it in my family. I, I learned these a long time ago from some people that were farther along and they were investing into my life. Uh, but there's a verse from Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. And it shows the fruit of Paul's life. Understand, if Paul walked into this place, this is what he would do. So I continue to preach Christ to each person, using all wisdom to warn and to teach everyone in order to bring each one into God's presence as a mature person in Christ. To do this, I work and struggle using God's great strength that works so powerfully in me. See, if Paul walked in this room, he'd be scanning it, he'd be, he would be looking at the Schwatkeys and he'd be going, I'm going to take you guys out to coffee. And, the perp, and back in the back of his mind, he's going, I'm going to present them complete in Christ. That would be his motive. That's what God wants for us. He wants us to be intentional in the decisions to add those virtues, to come to a place where we're building into other people's lives to propel it. And, and, but people keep thinking that they have to be perfect and they have to be at this grand place in order to do this. And I had to go back to the author of our study, Peter. Days, the day of the night before his moodiness got the best of him, he cuts off somebody's ear. And remember, then he goes and sits around the fire and somebody comes up and he denies them, denies Jesus three times. And yet, a, a few weeks after that, when, when, God, when Jesus left this world, Peter and the, those young men walked out into the world and began the church, the bride of Christ. Was he ready? I, 
I don't, I don't think we were, I don't think we really, I think we overestimate where he was at when he was starting this process. So for us today, to end, where are you at? Are, are you a part of the process of, of wanting God to change you to become more like Jesus, to know him, to respond, to become an investor in the lives of people? And one of the ways you can do it I'm gonna, we're going to just pray and you can leave. And, but I encourage you to just walk out, talk to the people at some of the tables. There's, there's all kinds of things that we can do to begin the process of serving the body of Christ and to learn how to become an investor. Maybe it's working up in the sound booth. Maybe it's a part of fixing the meals on Wednesday night. Maybe it's working with kids in the nursery. Maybe, you understand, there's multiple ways of really beginning the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. So check it out. Let's pray.